And as we come to Numbers chapter 33, as you've been saying, the chronology of this book has just kind of really slowed down and almost come to complete halt because the children of Israel have pretty much completed their 40-year wilderness wandering. They've had their journeys, and when they didn't enter in at Kadesh Barina 38 years ago and the consequences of that, and they've cleared Edom, they've defeated Sihon and Og on the east side of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea, modern Jordan, and they're there in the plain of Moab, and uh, they're looking at Jericho. They can literally see Jericho where they're at. So they're like a couple million people looking right across the river at their future and their destiny and all that God has for them. But on this east side of the river, they still are. Two and a half tribes that we studied has already said that they want to come back to that side of the river once they complete the conquest of the land. And that's been permitted and allowed as they chose that. And Moses is just going over some final things here as their leader because God told him he's not going in the promised land. So he's reviewing some things for the people. When we get to Deuteronomy in just a couple weeks, that is a detailed sermon of Moses expanding the law of God in his last month or so of his life. That's just fantastic. I'm in there in my devotions right now, and I just, every day I said this, when I read Deuteronomy, I just underline everything. It all speaks to me. It's so powerful, the uh, explaining of God's law in Deuteronomy, and that's where we're headed. But chronologically, in a historical record of numbers here, Moses in this final little exhortation of, review of things before he goes into what he's going to teach in Deuteronomy. So as we pick it up in 33, chapter 33, my Bible has a title over it, and it says, Israel's Journey from Egypt Reviewed. And that's exactly what it is. And so we're going to look at this journey that they've been on, and they're still on with a whole new season in front of them. Now, there was the census of 600,000 men over 20, 40 years before, and only two are still alive from that Joshua and Caleb will go into the land. There was another census they just had right on the cusp of going into the promised land of a new generation, and we've studied that as well. And here they are, the nation of Israel, God's people in a covenant, and they're about to enter in, and we read this in verse 1. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. This is our topic, and this is our introduction tonight, their journey. They were on a journey. Now, Joshua and Caleb are very unique because they will go into the promised land, and they came out of Egypt. So Joshua and Caleb came out of Egypt, so they knew what it was like to be slaves in Egypt and not have those freedoms. They knew what it was like to have the deliverance of the Lord that brought them out of the, the bondage of the household of Pharaoh, the slavery and Egypt, a type of the world, and Pharaoh, a type of the devil, and being a slave, a type of slave to sin. And in their foreshadowed way, they knew what deliverance of the Lord felt like. Those two particularly. Moses as well, because he's still alive, but everyone over, everyone else over 20, man, they, they don't remember that way. So the rest of the people who would remember c coming out of Egypt, they would have been under 20 and a younger age. And again, it's funny because when you get older, when you're 17, it seems pretty old. Like, I'm going to remember everything when I'm 17. But when you're 57, there's a lot you don't remember when you're 17. And your worldview at 17 is a lot different than it is at 57, right? We, we understand as we get older and go forward in our journey. So as they're re reviewing their journey, there's going to be Moses reviewing it, looking at Jericho and the Promised Land, the next chapter is not part of him. It's like when you visit someone who's dying terminally and they're talking about the future in a matter-of-fact way when they know they're not going to be here for it. If you've ever had that experience, and I have, it's a very surreal type of experience. But when you go to visit someone and you know they're dying, 
it's just, it's just like they're completing their journey, but there's still something in front of you for yours. So Moses, the one who's speaking right now, he's wrapping it up, and he knows what's coming next, but he's not going to be a part of that. Joshua and Caleb, they're going to be huge leaders in that next season, and these new men above 20 in the census, they're a part of it, and all the women as well and the children, they've completed something, but they're looking at something new. They've come out of something, they've been through something, on the cusp of something brand new and uncharted waters in front of them. And as they came through the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt, so they'll go through the part of Jordan River going into the Promised Land as well. These are the journeys. There's over 40 places listed in this chapter, going verse by verse, which we did on Tuesday night, that are the different stops they had. So it's like a those old AAA trip ticks you used to get were like this, you know, with AAA, if you ever got them when you took a trip, they don't do that anymore, but it, it shows all the spots you're going, and you turn the pages, and it's like, it just goes on and on of, of your journey, and this is what this is. This is a, like a trip tick from AAA, or it's like a photo album where a lot was in it. it you know, when you go through a photo album, the kids are getting older. Those, you know those old photo albums where you they're, they're sticky, and you put the pictures in? Yeah, I, I think you can still find them if you look hard enough for them, but they don't make them like they used to, right? And, and it's, it's all there. So the context is there, there's a reflection and a, a reminding of where they've been, how they got to where they're at, and what's in front of them. That's where this chapter takes them. This chapter takes them back to the beginning of their journeys, recounts their journeys, and talks about what's around the corner in front of them in the next chapter or the continuation of the journey. And this is our context. We read on now as we look at the topic of how it all began for them. And if we think too, just like how it says in uh, Hebrews that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, we can take the historical context of what they went through and apply it to our lives if we know Jesus, what our journey has been like as Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith. So we read in verse 3 this about the beginning of their journeys. They departed from Ramses, there in Egypt, in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. That's how it all began. It all began in Egypt. It all began within the fullness of time, God began to move. Again, God said, to Abraham some four centuries before, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The people that are going to be judged in the promised land, they had, not re they had not yet reached the place of rightness of their judgment from God. But now the Amorites who are in the promised land that are going to be displaced, they have. We read something very similar in the New Testament where it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to deliver us from the curse of the law. Because the, God's law is a curse to us because it condemns us because we can't keep it. And it shows we need to be saved other than our self-righteousness, rather through righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But it says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Early on in ministry, when I first came on South at Calvary Chapel Vista, Brian Broderson walked in my office and he handed me like four books. Huh, what do I do? He's like, read these books. I guess that was my version of seminary. And in one of those books, it talked about a whole chapter about the fullness of time, the timing when Jesus came in the world, the, the Greek culture, the remnant of it, the Roman world, the Roman roads, 
the technology and the ability to go all around with the church in the early days of the church and to get the gospel message out to all the world, in essence, in one generation. Very fascinating, the whole study on God's timing when Jesus came into the world. Also, when Jesus uh, was sent for by Martha and Mary about Lazarus, he came right on time because Martha and Mary both said, if you'd only been here, but he was right on time. God's timing is always the right timing. This is the beginning of his timing. This is when the nation was to be birthed and brought forth. Generations of Israelites crying out for deliverance from what they've been through, and now their cry is heard in God's timing. This is the beginning, for it was there in Ramses, and there he judged Egypt with the ten plagues, judging their gods each time he judged the plagues. Each plague was a judgment on their false gods. So he showed himself superior to their gods. And remember, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord of the Hebrews? And God showed him who the Lord of the Hebrews was. And so when we think about their deliverance coming out of the promised land, excuse me, out of Egypt, we realize that it was right on time. The beginning was right on time. It was God's timing, exactly when he wanted them to come out. He brought them out with power. He showed himself more powerful than Pharaoh, Egypt, and their bondage. He showed that his power was superior to all powers, and he made the gods of the Egypt plague the Egyptians, and he showed himself to be God of the universe, for there is no God like the Lord our God. And he showed himself powerful to his people in their deliverance. So in their beginning, it began with a demonstration of God's power on their behalf. They didn't earn it. They were slaves. They didn't have an army. They had no standing weapons. They had no form of resistance. It was God's power that brought them out of passing from under the bondage of Pharaoh, Egypt, and their slavery. And it is God's power that delivers the believer in Jesus Christ from the bondage to Satan, sin, and the world system. And fear of the grave, the death itself, the grave. These are a shadow of things to come, but for us the fullness is Christ. It is God's power that delivers us from our sins. It is God's power that delivers us victory, victory of the cross and the blood of the Lamb that delivers us from the power of Satan over our life. It is God's power that sets us free. For if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. It is His power that sets us free from sin and its grip. Yesterday, I randomly decided to post a picture of my sister driving away headed for Florida on Instagram. It's not the kind of typical post I'd post, but I thought, you know, it's pretty cool. Like, I'm really proud of my sister. And many of you know my sister's story in and out of prison or jail for years, homeless for years, off and on, drugs and alcohol. And the redemption of her life is an amazing story. We get more responses from K-Wave whenever I mention my sister in a study than anything else I share, because everyone knows a Barbie. Everyone knows someone like my sister. And I posted this. Uh, I just showed me and Barbie. I just, like, hugging her. She's loaded up. She's taking stuff to Hannah. It's going in the pod, you know, getting shipped to Florida. And she's so excited. We just visited my dad, too. It was an awesome time. It was a really special day. But I said, I'm just so proud of my sister that four years or so after all this terrible things in her life that she's been sober for three and a half years. She's paid off all of her personal debt. She's been expunged of all of her criminal charges. Some were felonies. She's been expunged of all of them. She did two years of DUI school to get her license restored, which happened when we were back in Florida looking for her house at the same time, which is really special. And she's been restored to her son who never wanted to talk to her again. And all these things have just gone so well in her life and it was just it's a wonderful story and I'll, I'll tell you I had I've had more likes on that than anything I've posted I even remember I think anything I've ever posted I'll tell you this I've had more comments on that than anything I've ever posted in all my Instagram I, I didn't know what to expect like you know just me and my sister you know like 
we have Barbie and her story of redemption. And I mean, I had, I had this large swath of people that follow me on Instagram that's, you know, from growing up in Carlsbad to famous people in Hollywood to anything in between, almost all those people commented. We all love a story of redemption, but her redemption is a story of God's power to deliver her. Because as she's driving to her new house in Florida, I can picture the dumpsters that she slept behind in Vista, behind the dollar store, on Vista Way. She was willing to let God work, but only God could deliver her. And if we're willing to let God work in our life, only God can deliver us from those things. We all want to be encouraged. I didn't have to say Jesus delivered her. I had about 50 people that made sure in the comments that anyone looking knows that Jesus delivered Barbie. That's who Jesus is. No one takes my life from me, he says. I have power to lay it down and take it up. And he raises us up. And as he delivered Egypt in their beginning in power with blood, the blood of the, the Passover, because remember in their deliverance, it was blood, it was unleavened bread, and it was swift and total. And he gave them all the blessings of Egypt when they left. And they went out with boldness. I move on from this with this last thought on this first point. In the beginning, they went out with boldness. And we need to function based upon God's deliverance, based upon who he is, his promises, the blood on our doorpost, the unleavened bread in our backpack, and the sandals on our feet. We need to go out with boldness in everything Jesus Christ is calling us to do. We are coming from the place of authority. We are coming from the place of total victory. Equally, for anyone who names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So whether we're in a very impoverished part of the world, where Christians are severely persecuted, or we have the freedoms like we still have here in this country, we, we, we have an equal basis and foundation to have boldness. Because it says they went out with boldness. That's what the cross does for us. That's what the empty grave does for us. That's what Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for us does for us. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does for us. It gives us boldness. And it was Paul who said it best, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And that's boldness, I am not ashamed. This treasure is in an earthen vessel, but this incorruptible is going to put on, this corruptible is going to put on incorruptibility. This mortal all around the room is going to put on immortality. And Christ is going to raise us from the grave. And when he comes in glory, we're going to be glorified with him. That's boldness, WG. That's boldness in 2021. That's boldness in 2022. That's boldness on your deathbed. That's boldness when the doctor tells you it's terminal and there's no hope. That's boldness. And that's what we have. Isn't that wonderful tonight? They went out with boldness. See, our foundation in Christ is a sure foundation that gives us absolute boldness for everything he wants to do in our life. Those things are always going to be around us. Men who, who, men who are negative and opposing are always going to be around us. Failure is going to always be right around the corner, but we're free from all those fears. And the grave is always lurking. It's always lurking. And we're free from those fears. Because we're under the blood, with the unleavened bread, and we're going out with boldness. That's who Jesus Christ is for us, his church. This is the shadow. They had the shadow. They had the black and white TV version, like an I Love Lucy rerun. We got, we got the fullness right here tonight, right to the day of the Lord. Praise God. Now, the second thing about their journey. So when we think about our journey in Christ, whether we're early on the journey or been on the journey for decades or fairly new or just decided we're going to finally get on the journey, come from boldness. Move in boldness. 
be fluid in boldness, stand in boldness, because our boldness is based upon Jesus and his victory and his power, not ours. They didn't deliver themselves. We didn't deliver ourselves. It's all the Lord. Now, the second thing we see here is in this journey, there were so many lessons, and we get, we get a lot of the early lessons in the first year, and isn't it interesting when you give your life to the Lord, so many lessons are in the first year to lay the foundation. By the way, in Deuteronomy, you're going to see that the first year is critical for a marriage. Do you know that in Deuteronomy 24? It says that a man is exempt from war and business the first year he's married, that he may learn how to please his wife. God puts a huge premium on the first year of marriage. And since we give our life to Christ, we become the bride, the bride of Christ, and he's our groom, if you will. Then it stands to reason, and many of us know this, in the first year with Jesus, there are so many things, if you get it right, you build the foundation right, you build a house on the rock, you'll stand, and you'll do well. But it's the first year gets you going, just like in a marriage, but really it's a, it's a, it's a long journey. Life is, a, in some ways, it's a vapor, like a 100-yard dash, but in a lot of ways, it's like a marathon where it has a different ebb and flow, and you have to push through different walls. Actually, it's more like a triathlon, depending on what it brings you away, right? So as they began their journey, in verse 5, we read this. So the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped in Succoth, and they departed from Succoth and camped in Etham, which is the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etham, Etham and turned to, back to Pahiharoth, which is east of Balzaphon, and they camped near Migdal. By the way, when they were camped there, God led them there, they were boxed in. They were completely boxed in. They had no exit, and that's when the Egyptian army came at them. So early on, he boxed them in where they had no exit except only the way that he could make. He was teaching them a lesson, powerful lesson, early on. It's in uh, Exodus chapter 15, that story. Verse 8, they departed from Hiharoth and passed through the midst of the sea in the wilderness. That's how he made a way through the Red Sea into the wilderness, destroyed the, his, the, their enemies, the Egyptian army, they went three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. That was a place where they were thirsty, but the water was bitter. You're like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, we're thirsty. You're giving us bitter water. What's that about? But that's how life works, right? They moved from Marah and came to Elam. And, of course, at Marah, they learned to put the wood in the water, and the water became sweet. And when we add the cross to life's bitterness, life can become sweet again. At Elam were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there. Elam is a place of refreshing. We learn early on in our walk with the Lord. God is a refreshing God, and he will refresh us. The one who set up the Sabbath principle in the Old Testament and gave his son with the rest that we can enter into, whose burden is not heavy and whose yoke is light, there's a refreshing that Jesus brings us. There's work to be done for sure, but there's a refreshing, and they learned that early on. Verse 10, they moved from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka, and they departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. So God tested them early on. Again, with water, there was no water. And he was testing them. Verse 15, they departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. So in these verses here from 5 through 15, we have the early part of their journey, all encompassing the first two years out of Egypt when they came out from their deliverance to being brought to Sinai, where God gave them his law. So after verse 15, verses 16 through 49, there's multiple stops. Again, there's a total of just over 40 on this list. But from verse 16 on until they're in the plains of Moab, which is the last phrase there in verse 49, is about 38 years. 
So you have all these events early on in the first two years that we know more about because of the book of Exodus. And then you have all these places they stopped at after they didn't go into, Kate, didn't go into the promised land where they wandered around for 38 years with the older generation dying off because of unbelief, the newer generation growing up in the desert and learning how to function and become a nation that they themselves would have their time to enter into their covenant with God. This all happened here. This is the whole recounting of their journey. And so if we put together verses 5 through 14, excuse me, 5 through 15, and then 16 through 49, we'll find something interesting. Sometimes it's really exciting with the Lord and things are going like boom, boom, boom. And other times it's a grind. Like life. Sometimes there's exciting times with life and sometimes it's a grind. Sometimes you just got to grind it. What are you doing? I'm just grinding. We just got to do what we got to do. Life is hard. My elderly parents are dying. My, my kids are breaking my heart. My spouse is sick or something. You know, it's like, and I still got to get up and go to work on Monday morning. You get on the freeway or whatever and drive up Beach Boulevard or Harbor or whatever. And what are you doing? I'm grinding. I can't just quit living because life is hard. I've got to grind. But you know, the good thing with the Lord is you're never grinding alone. He's grinding with you. He's grinding for you. This recounting of their journey, it's so interesting because there's exciting things, there's things that are a test, and then from 16 on to 49, it's like grinding, 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 raising children, raising grandchildren, tent up, tent down, tent up, tent down, tent up, tent down, Edom says no, go around, tent up, tent down, giants say I'm going to crush you, you beat giants, Canaanites come out, you beat them, you cry out, it's like they're just grinding, and you know, if you reach 60, you'll realize you probably just grinded through 40 years. Can I get a witness? You know, about 60, people think like, you know, they want their pensions. You know, if they had a city job, a teacher job, a county job, a state job, you grinded. And maybe now you, you get those, those benefits. Of course, they're, they're being redefined, I suppose, in a lot of places because you can't just, the math doesn't work for a lot of that stuff. But it's tough. My dad was a Marine 22 years, and he grinded in the prime of his life for the USMC to tour of duties in Okinawa, Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam War, Korea, med crews, a lot of stuff. Gone a lot of time from his kids. Fortunately for him, you know, they take good care of the veterans in America, and he's got pretty good benefits for being 90. He's got really good benefits, actually. You know, when he finished that, he, well, you know what my dad did for the next 20 years? He taught government at Miracosta Junior College. He taught young Marines. He taught them high school level government and U.S. history so they could get to the next level where they could take college level classes for that. That's what he did for 19 years. I kept the plaque. It's appreciation. I actually was going to throw it away with all this other stuff. I was like, you know what? That's 19 years of my dad's life. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I, I'm not going to throw it away. I'll put it with the photo albums, I suppose. My dad grinded for 19 years as a teacher at Miracosta Junior College. At the same time, he was a landscaper. My dad always loved to work the land. He ran his own landscaping business. He, he was the only full-time employee for 20 years in Vista. And you know, Vista gets very hot in August. I mentioned this. You do landscaping in Vista in August, it's hot. It's not pleasant. And the only other employees he ever had were part-time. It was me, my sister, and my brother at various times when life was hard. And man, when you work for Pops, there's, there's no messing around. And the, tr the, the, the truck leaves at 7 with the mowers and everything. It's like, he didn't care what the surf's like at Oceanside Harbor at 7.15. Like, it's 7 o'clock. And there's X amount of houses, and you'll show up back done at 5 o'clock. 
like World War II Osborne Street. It's a grinder. You know it's like to grind. Most of life is not that exciting. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life. Just live a good life. Be a woman of God. Be a woman of character. Be a woman of conviction whose word is yes and no is no. Be a, be a man of God. Be a man of integrity. Be the man who, who, who the kids look back fine, fondly when he's gone. He says, our dad was a great dad. They don't say a great dad, but. They say, no, our dad was a great dad. Like, just be that person. Because that's the whole journey. See, when I look at this story from verse 5 to 49, and I see some exciting early parts, and I see the real journey of just grinding for 38 years to get to the plain of Moab, they're really looking back over their whole life. And you say, what was my life all about? And you know, when people get cancer or they've got something terminal, they do become very reflective. You say, well, what was it all about? I guess this is it. At 21, at 30, at 40, at 50, 60, 70. And it's like, what was it all about? And you reflect. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to be born and a time to die. And it talks about there's different times and different seasons for everything. And there are exciting times, but there's times where you're just, you're just grinding. But in through it all, Jesus is over it all. And that's what we want. We want Jesus over everything in our journey. If your life is a series of those old school photo albums like our family has, we want to see Jesus over every photo and every page of that photo album. We want him over all of it. Over all of it. We don't want a photo album of two years where Jesus isn't a part of it. Or we took a vacation from the Lord. We want Jesus over all of it. Jesus over all the journey. When you're tested and the water is not there. When you're tested and the water is there and it's bitter. It was a bait and switch. Someone it was going to give you this job and then they switched the conditions of the job. We've all had that happen in life, right? I mean, sooner or later you get a serious bait and switch in life. It's like, <laughs> Shake your hand with one hand and stab you in the back with the other. That's life. Just make sure you're not the one doing it. You live long enough, you get, you get that stuff. And you're like, Lord, how can this be? And you learn to give it to the Lord. You learn to add the, the cross to the bitter water of Mara. I tell the story occasionally, but that one songwriter that came to me, he wrote a song that went number one. He got no credit for it. And he said, every time I heard that song on the radio, he was so upset. Because it was his song, and he didn't get credit for it, and he didn't get money for it. And I just told him that day at Calvary Christian Mesa, here's what you're going to do. We're going to give that to the Lord right now in this sanctuary. We're going to make that an offering to the Lord. You're giving the Lord a number one song without any credit, any accolades, and that's your treasure in heaven for all eternity. You're buying a stock that you're never going to cash in. It's like a 401k or an IRA you're never going to touch. It's just there until you get to the kingdom. That's what you're going to do. You're going to take all that equity of what you did, and it was a beautiful song. You take all that equity, we're just going to put it right there for all eternity. How about that? He's like, I like that. I like that. He's like, I'm not kidding. That's what we're doing. So let's give that to the Lord. Here's an investment for eternity. And off he went with peace in his heart. you got to add the wood to the bitter water, Mara, the cross. you got to learn those lessons. When you're grinding, when it's exciting, when it's boring got to add the cross and keep going forward. So they had a bold beginning. And they had this journey with things that were exciting, things that were a test, things that were a trial. But in the midst of that journey, 
early on, God gave him his law right at Mount Sinai. And he gave him his word. And that word became the compass for everything they could think and do in their journey. A right and a wrong. The daughters of Zolophad, well, what about us? Hey, here's what we're going to do. So as he gave them his law at Mount Sinai to guide their steps, so too he's given us his whole word to guide us in our journey. So on the darkest day in the wilderness, year 27, like Star Trek in the year da-da-da, like Star Trek used to do, year 27 of the wilderness wandering, when we're working our way around this, this mountain right here, we had this situation going on in our family, and we went to the word of God, given through the law of God to Moses, and we found the answer and we believed it, we received it, and we lived it. And God blessed us because he promised blessings on those who obey his word. And we chose to forgive the neighbors from Naphtali. We chose to let this go and go forward in the 27th year. And by the way, you know, after we did that on the 27th year, the next 13 went pretty good. And now mom and dad are gone, but we're in the plains of Moab, and we learned that lesson from them, and they showed us the right way to go, even though they perished on this side of the river. But his word guided us. The word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He gave them their word, his word, for their journey, even as God has given us his word for our journey. Isn't it wonderful we're not clueless? Isn't it wonderful we have a compass, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation? Isn't it wonderful we have the gospel as the foundation of everything, how we see the optics on everything in our life? This is wonderful. Praise the Lord. We're not like this groping in the dark, like what's truth, what's falsehood, what can we know, what we do? He's given us his word. It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. That's what they had for their journey. And believe me, you, Joshua and Caleb sure took that word to heart, didn't they? Oh, Joshua and Caleb, they, they just, they, they be, you know, you walk up to Caleb in year 33 in the wilderness wondering, hey, Caleb, what's the word? The word is this. And there's no double question coming from Caleb. Wednesday, Friday, whatever. Hey, Joshua, what's the word of the Lord? Year 37. Hey, the word of the Lord is this. That word of the Lord, I've hidden in my heart that I will not sin against thee. Jeremiah said, I tried to ignore your word, but it was burning in me like a fire. So as we're in our journey, and as we reflect on our journey, looking back over everything to this day, we know that God's word is proven true. Proven true. All the promises are yes and amen. They're proven, every promise is proven true. Not one promise has failed for us, and nor will one promise ever fail for us from his word. We can trust his word with everything. On the highest mountaintop, his word goes higher. In the lowest valley, his word goes deeper. Like Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? If I ascend to the grave, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. It's wonderful. We have everything we need to be fruitful, successful, as the world would use the term, and complete what he has for us on our journey. He didn't send us on our journey without a compass. He gave us the compass. He gave us his presence. He gave us the power. And that's what we know. So we see that it was his power in the beginning. It's the promises and the sureness of his word in the human experience throughout all of this. Growing, keep going and keep growing is what I thought of when I was thinking about the second point. Keep going. Stop after stop. Okay. Tent goes up. Tent goes down. Keep going and keep growing. Tent goes up. Tent comes down. Different view. You're just still camped in with the tribe of Zebulun because you're a Zebulonite. You know, wherever you were, the Gadite, Asherite, you're, just, you're with your tribe. You know where your banner is? That's our banner for 40 years. <laughs> you know, that's us, you know. Keep going, keep growing. Let the Lord guide us. So tonight, we reflect on our photo album of life. Our photo albums of life, depending on where we're at in life, how many photo albums we might have. 
That boldness, we need more of it. And the confidence that the blood gives us in the beginning. And then this journey, yeah, highs and lows, ebb and flows. Find it, grind it. Up goes the tent, down goes the tent. Keep moving, grow and grow. And that's what we're seeking to do in the year of our Lord, 2021. But the last thing we see here in this text about their journey, Israel's journey reviewed, is found in verse 50. There on the plains of Moab, it says this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho. So we know they're looking at Jericho, this giant challenge, this next chapter in front of them. And the Lord spoke to him, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan to the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance. To the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those that whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Now, we did study chapter 34 Tuesday night. In chapter 34, God defines for them their boundaries that they're to fulfill and enter into. Then he picks 12 men to be in charge of the division of the inheritance of the boundaries, including under the direction of Joshua and Eliezer, Aaron's son, Caleb. Now think about this. When the first census took place, when we began Numbers, God chose 12 leaders for each of the 12 tribes. Those guys failed. They died in the wilderness. Then he gave another list of 12, the 12 spies that went out to spy out the land, of which Joshua and Caleb were on that list. So the second group of 12, Joshua and Caleb, were on that list. Now, 40 years later, there's another group of 12, and Joshua is over the list. He's not on the list. He's over the list. He's the supreme commander, commander-in-chief. And Caleb is in that group. So here's 11 guys that would have been under 20 at Kadesh Barina, and here's Caleb, the veteran. You know, it's like one of those sports teams where you have all these young superstar athletes, and you got that one savvy veteran that kind of keeps the locker room, even Steven, everyone steady. That's Caleb. When they're like, oh, I'm so nervous. This is my first Super Bowl. And they're just like, it's my 10th. It's all good. Like, they're like that. They're like that. That's how, that's how Caleb was in faith, not football, but in faith. But what's it like? What's it like in the promised land? It's like, well, I'll tell you what, if Manasseh and uh, Ephraim, those guys, uh, Gad, had asked me, I would have told them, don't settle for this side of the river. I would have told them that. They never came and asked me what it's like. I've been there. Let me tell you, those grapes, I've tasted those grapes. You know, I'm telling you something else. I'm getting in the land. I'm getting those grapes. Those, those are my grapes. That's my vineyard that God's promised me. We got this. That's what he would have been like. But he would have told them, just make sure when we get in there, you finish the job. Don't get in there and settle for a field goal. you got to punch it in the end zone. This is red zone stuff. You don't settle for less than what God has. We can't just get in there and have success based upon what people see success. We don't need this Syrian saying, wow, Israel's successful. They're in the land and they're ruling the land with a bunch of Ammonites in it. Don't settle for that, you guys. No, we got to go in the land and we got to do exactly what God told us to do in the land. We need to dispossess everything, drive them out, or destroy them. Because if we don't destroy them, they will destroy us. So the Syrians and the 
you know, us Syrians and the Phoenicians, they might think we're successful. Who's this new people with a whole new country taking over? And like, wow, it's so impressive, Joshua and Israel. But that doesn't mean anything. What people think, what God thinks is everything. And God says, don't settle for anything less than all of what I've told you to do. So here, as they're looking at their future on this side of the Jordan, on the plains of Moab, looking at Jericho going like, wow, you know, like, all these guys, the young guys, like, man, how are we going to take that city? And Joshua's like, I'm going on a prayer walk. And he learned he doesn't have to solve the problem. God's going to solve the problem. And there he's on his prayer walk. And what happens? Here comes Jesus, commander of the Lord's army. Scares Joshua. He's like, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And the Lord's like, no, but as a commander of the Lord's army, I'm here. Oh, I guess I fall on my face now. And he fell on his face. You don't fall on your face for angels. That's a Christophany, a theophany in the Old Testament. See, Jesus had the victory for Jericho. He had the plan for Jericho. There's no reason for Joshua to fret over it or Caleb to fret over it. What we need to focus on is what's entrusted for us to do when we're called to do what we do. We don't need to worry about the details. God's got the details. He's got the big picture. The one that sent us out with boldness, the one who's carried us through the excitement, the trials, the testings, and the grinding, he knows what's for the next chapter. He knows how to get it done. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to march six days around it, and then on the seventh day, you're going to march seven times around it. So you're going to go seven days, and then the seventh day, seven times, blow the trumpet, I'll give you victory. The same God who delivered you from Egypt under the blood with the, the unleavened bread is the same God who's going to take you in. The one that took you out is going to take you in. The one that took us out from sin death, the grave, and the power of the devil is going to take us into the kingdom, the glory, and incorruptibility. Amen. He's going to take us in. So we don't need to fret about that. What we do need to pay attention to is this exhortation, because he's recounted their beginning and where they're currently at and all that they've done, but their future's in front of them. And he's saying, listen, this is a strong exhortation. You make sure that you do what you have to do when you get there. And don't double clutch on it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Don't let the father lies come in here and confuse your mind of right and wrong and redefine what God's told you to do. When you couldn't what you don't know, fall back what you do know, and God has told you clearly, you destroy these things or they will destroy you. And if they don't destroy you, they will eventually destroy your children. You don't want to see that, do you? Or your grandchildren, which is, is almost even worse than your children. You don't want to see that. So do what you must do as difficult as it might seem. That's what you must do. And they had difficult things they had to do. But they had to do it. It was their stewardship, and they had to do it. And there might be difficult things we have to do. Sometimes you just have difficult things you have to do. You know, as you get older, you might have to tell adult siblings, no, you're out. You can't come around here. You can't do this. You can't be here. You might have to tell adult children, no, it's not going to work that way. You just, you, you just don't even know what life brings you as you get older, but you find out as you're getting older, right? There are difficult things that you might have to do but whatever God calls us to do that's difficult is for the preservation of the, of the work of God in our life, for the advancement for the work of God in our life, and for the glory of Christ to come from that work of our life. So the most difficult things we're ever called to do, there's things that, that I've had to do that, that they, they just give me anxiety when I think about it. Things that I'm facing with family stuff or legal stuff. And it's like, oh, gosh. And it's like, but, you know, it's what I have to do. And what I've learned is what's the next thing? What's the next thing? 
because it gets so overwhelming in my mind. What the next thing is, across this river, the next thing is, blow the trumpet. The next thing is, seek the Lord before the battle of Ai. The next thing is, do what God says to do to the people of Ai. The next thing is, don't be deceived by the Gibeonites. The next thing is, go into Judah and get your land, get your well, give it to your daughter for her wedding day with Othniel. That's the next thing. Do what you have to do. And in doing what you have to do, however difficult it is, you're honoring God, you're pleasing God, and you're preserving the work of God in your life, and you're advancing the work of God in your life. Jesus' burden is light, and his yoke is easy, if you will, but it's a narrow gate, and he himself said it's a difficult gate. So there's this paradoxical thought here in serving the Lord sometimes. There's a peace and a joy in the midst of chaos with Jesus, but at the same time, there is difficult things that need to be done. That has to be done. And we do well to heed his word to do the most difficult things that might need to be done. Because if we don't destroy what could destroy us, sin, compromises, capitulation to the world, worldly things that come against God's word, try to be men pleasers, then in the end, it'll begin with an irritant in our eyes. We will not see clearly what's really going on. We will not see clearly. And then become a thorn in our side a constant irritation bad decisions ungodly decisions compromises unwillingness to do what God's called us to do however difficult it might be our, we'll lose our clarity we'll be irritant and there'll be an agitation in our side and ultimately the, the danger of compromise and capitulating things that need to be done for the Lord that are difficult is to, if we don't deal with the world in our life if we don't deal with the devil in our life we don't deal with the sin in our life and have humility to, to be willing to do so in Jesus' name, then those things will destroy us. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And you get slightly off course when you're still in Hawaii. It doesn't look much when you're just getting past Catalina and Cortez Banks, but by the time you get toward Hawaii, you're, you're, you're stuck between Tahiti and Hawaii. And you've passed America Samoa, and you might miss Fiji. Like, it's just you get off a little bit here, the farther you get out, the farther off you are. So God's warning them, you got to do what you got to do. So I think of us in 2021 as the body of Christ. And I think of Philippians 3. Forgetting what's behind us, we press on to what lies ahead. Not that we've attained, because we haven't attained. We have our journey so far. We can't go back and redo the beginning of boldness and the blood. And we can't really redefine the, the things we've experienced in life that's brought us. Bitter water or wells that don't even, or no water at all and reefing them. What we can do is go forward. Not that I've attained. We have not attained. When you're in the plains of Moab, you have not attained. When you're in the plains of Moab, you have not attained. You feel like, wow, we just did 40 years. Joshua, Caleb, like, let's, let's have a cup of tea and talk about this. Hey, we've not attained at all. We've just set ourselves up for the final chapter of our life to do everything God's called us to do. We've not attained. We've been prepared to enter in is what we've been prepared to do, but we've not attained. So we forget what's behind and we press on to what lies ahead so we can leave all of our failures behind tonight in our photo album and all of our stops. What we can do tonight is look at where we're at in the plains of Moab and say, it is what it is. We're still here. We're still with our tribe, with the WG tribe. We're still here. We're still part of the Calvary movement. Jesus is still on the throne. There's lots of opportunity for the body of Christ. There's lots of work to grow of character in our hearts and in our touching people's lives for good. So we need to heed the exhortations not to come short in the seasons in front of us.
And as people compromise the word of God, as they compromise the gospel, as people compromise to the world from the church, we don't want to be, we don't want to do that. We just don't want to do that. We want to just continue to be faithful, to do all the right things, and call truth, truth. Be loving, compassionate, empathetic, transparent, Christ-like in all things. But the gospel is the gospel, and the word of God is the word of God. And it's never going to change, like the law given at Mount Sinai. Truth is truth. Let's learn from this story about just keep going forward. And it ultimately ends with an exhortation, right? This is a strong exhortation. I don't want to irritate my eyes. I don't want a thorn in my flesh, do you? And I definitely don't want coming on me what's coming to the planet when the Lord returns. So we'll walk in the light, as it says in Thessalonians. We're not children of the night and children of darkness, but we're children of the light. So let us walk in the light.